So there's been a bit of um, a few developments since since we last spoke. So we've got the Act, we've got the rules, uh, revised rules, legislative instruments. So they were all in place, but now we're getting more guidance, I, I guess, from the ATO. And there was three pieces that were released. There was a practical compliance guideline, which is PCG 2020/4, a practice statement law administration. That's PSLA 2020/1. And a law companion ruling, which is called LCR 2020-1. Now, th- that might just all sound like jargon, but those three things do very different things, which, which we cover in this session. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to another COVID-19 update of Text Talks, update number 14. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. We had the JobKeeper Act and legislative instruments regarding the alternative turnover test and we covered those in previous updates. But now we also have a practical compliance guideline, a practice statement and a law companion ruling. So a guideline, a statement and a ruling. Here's Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney walking you through these. In the last week or so, we've had three new guidance documents from the ATO. None of these are law per se, but these are these are guidance things. First one is the Practice Statement Law Administration PSLA 2020-1. That's all to do with some of the discretions available to the Commissioner. The Second one is the Law Companion Ruling, LCR 2020-1, which is all about uh, the ins and outs of the decline and turnover test. And the final one is the Practical Compliance Guideline, PCG 2020-4, which is about how the commissioner will look to potentially apply the anti-avoidance rules in respect of JobKeeper. So which one should we start with? Let's start with the PSLA, so ABNs and things like that because it's the easiest one. PSLA 2020 slash one, practice statement, law administration. So to qualify for JobKeeper under the eligible business participant rules, they apply to, for instance, sole traders. One of the requirements is that the individual or taxpayer needs to have an ABN as at 12th March 2020. And they have had to have lodged either income tax returns or GST returns with the commissioner also by that date. Now, the rules do provide for discretion that the commissioner may exercise in appropriate cases. So, uh, for example, if if the entity does not have an ABN as at 12th of March, but there is a, some reason why the commissioner should, should allow that um, person to qualify. PSLA 2020-1 goes into the details regarding both of those things, and it gives some guidance regarding when the commissioner is more likely to exercise that discretion and, and situations where the commissioner is less likely to exercise that discretion. It does apply quite a bit to new businesses. They're specifically mentioned in the in the practice statement. It talks about new businesses established from 1 July 20. 19 that are not registered or required to register for GST. So that's one type of taxpayer that will uh, get a lot of benefit out of these practice statement rules. The starting position is that this is a discretion available in quite limited circumstances. So the intention is not, you know, 
where you're conducting a business but not ha- didn't have an ABN. It's a pretty black and white test that you need to have an ABN and there's only very limited things that will get you out of that. One example the practice statement goes through is sole trader operating in Norfolk Island. Now, I'm not an expert on Norfolk Island, but but apparently if you operate just in Norfolk Island, you, you don't need to have an ABN. So that's a situation where you could still be eligible for JobKeeper. There's a specific example talking about Helen, who operates a business as a sole trader, sells things online, has a business plan and has turnover of 40,000, but she's been operating without an ABN. And upon hearing that there's this JobKeeper scheme, um, wants to register for an ABN and, and, and either try to get it backdated or get the commissioner to exercise his discretion. The ATO said this is a case that is unlikely that the commissioner will actually exercise his discretion. Basically, that the person essentially did, deliberately did not have an ABN at that date. And it's a clear requirement of basically carrying on a business. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of love for those people who do not have ABNs as that 12th yes. of March. And it also means that this lady probably didn't declare any income on those $40,000 of... Yeah, I think I think there would be quite a bit of that as well. So the commissioner not, not looking too favorably upon that. So we basically have three scenarios. You legally had no ABN on the 12th of March, and there you will probably receive the commissioner's love. You had illegally not an ABN on the 12th of March, meaning you should have had an ABN because you ran a business, but you didn't. And that probably will receive no love. And then in active ABN, where you had an ABN on the 12th of March, but you really shouldn't because you weren't running a business anymore, where you have an inactive ABN. That's the... Uh, PSLA make a comment about that? Yeah, look, it doesn't really talk about inactive ABNs. I mean, the, the legislation and the, the practice statement talk about whether you held an ABN or not. And of course, there's the requirements to be more or less sort of running a business through the income tax return or, or GST return provision. So I don't, I don't believe it actually contemplates the situation where there's an inactive ABN. I think it's dealt with through the requirement that the business has essentially made supplies or had accessible income during the previous period. Yes. So that now leads us to the next problem that PSLA covers. The first problem is basically when you have no ABN on the 12th of March. But I think the second problem is when you had an ABN on the 12th of March, but you didn't lodge any BES or tax returns for the 2018-19 here. That's dealt with in the practice statement as well. That there isn't as many examples in that situation. There is one example of a, a sole trader who commenced business in December 2019, and due to delays, they didn't make any sales in December, and then so um, they hadn't lodged any bazes by the 12th of uh, March. And the, and the commissioner says, well, that is an example where it would be appropriate to to allow further time. So it doesn't give any other situations, but I think as a general comment, if it's a new business, I think the commission is more likely to exercise their discretion when compared to that to that ABN requirement. It doesn't discuss the change of GST lodgement from annual to quarterly, for example. No, it doesn't. And it, yeah, it's quite a brief document. So I think there's probably limited benefit in it as if you're in this situation, you do need to apply for the commissioner's discretion in any event. So I guess my takeaway is if you are affected, you need to seek that um, the exercise of that discretion. The clear-cut rules are 
If you haven't lodged any BAS or income tax returns for the 2018-19 tax return, then you don't qualify for the JobKeeper. That's the rule. But I think that only applies to the business participant, correct? Yeah, that doesn't correct. apply to employer-employee relationships. So that if, meaning if the same scenario applies to a company where the company employs its only director and that company hasn't lodged BAS and tax returns for 2018-19 yet, then they are not barred from the JobKeeper based on this rule that you must have lodged BAS and income tax returns for 2018-19 before the 12th of March. Yeah, quite correct. So the JobKeeper is only for, sorry, these rules are only for the eligible business participant side of JobKeeper. I should add that the rules do also talk about the cash flow boost in a little bit of detail and seem to apply to that as well. But for the employee situation under JobKeeper, that's not a requirement. So you don't need to go to these practice statements. So this is PSLA 2020-1. I, I assume it's only one or two pages long, correct? It's four pages, but um, there's a lot of uh, footnotes and Definitions. You know, filler material, basically. Which one should we do next? Let's go to the Law Companion Ruling. LCR 2020-1, Law Companion Ruling. Law Companion Ruling, LCR 2020-1. Now, what a law companion ruling is, is essentially it's a new-ish product that the ATO has issued over the last couple of years. And it's intended to provide further guidance to new legislation because when legislation first comes out, there isn't any case law and there might be sort of limited guidance on some of the, some of the more nuanced terms. So this law companion ruling is all about the decline in turnover test. It clarifies, I guess, a few myths and makes a few things quite clear. And then it talks quite a lot in detail about how to calculate the value of supplies for the, for the decline in turnover test. So best place to start is, I think, I guess that the law companion ruling clarifies a few, a few things that may have been uncertain. It clarifies what the turnover test periods are and what the relevant comparison periods are. And so it, it confirms that the test period can be March, the month of March can be the month of April, can be the quarter commencing 1 April to 30 June, and, and it can be other periods if you wanted to qualify for the JobKeeper later. The LCR does confirm that you only need to satisfy the decline in turnover test once, specifically says that, says that if you satisfy it, you don't need to test your turnover in following months or quarters. Now, while this was I guess, fairly apparent from the legislation still is nice for the ATO to confirm it in a publication. Yes, and I think they did that because they had said something different before. Yes. You know, yeah. because at some stage they had said on their website that it is an ongoing test. Yeah, I think early on there was some, yeah, a, a little bit of mis misleading material. But so I think there will be a lot of focus on April because, of course, the earliest you can qualify is April and hence March or April. You could also qualify in March, but the payments come through April. So the, the two periods that are really at the forefront of this are March and April 2020, because if you want to get the full benefit of the JobKeeper payments, you need to qualify either in March or in April yeah. or for the fourth quarter. So that's where the focus yeah. would be on. Uh, yeah, so I would so I would add to that there's there's essentially really three tests. If you want to qualify from the very start of JobKeeper, it's month of March, month of April, or the April quarter. The LCR 
confirms it does it does note that um for the job keeper there are ongoing monthly turnover reporting requirements but it does explicitly state that that information that you provide does not affect your ongoing eligibility for job keeper so you only do the test once either for march or for april or for the june quarter but then you have to go back in as an employer every month and confirm for who did you pay the job keeper for which fortnight? Yes, correct. And also your business's turnover for for each month as well. So okay. you actually do need to report your turnover back to the ATO, but it does not affect your eligibility for the JobKeeper, which is a really important point to, to note and it's talked about in a bit more detail in the LCR. The LCR then talks about Well, what kind of supplies are needed for to work out GST turnover? And it confirms it's not not really groundbreaking anything it says. There's a few categories that are excluded, and most notably, it's it's really input tax supplies and supplies that have absolutely no connection to Australia. The ruling does confirm that things that are exports are generally do have a connection to Australia. So if a business, uh, let's say a service business is providing services to an overseas person, but providing them from Australia, those supplies will be included for the turnover tests, which was a bit of uh, a bit of an uncertain point. The law companion ruling talks about, as we've discussed, you need to qualify for either March, April, or the June quarter. Now, depending on when exactly you applied, You might have figures already for March or April and there's no element of uh, forecasting required. But if you are relying on the June quarter, then there's an element of forecasting required because as we know, for JobKeeper, it's based on projected GST turnover. So if you applied as at 1 May 2020 for, and, and you're basing your calculations off the quarter, then there's a projection that, that needs to be made. Now, the ATO fully acknowledged that That is a projection and projections can be wrong. And if you project something, but your turnover is actually higher, that doesn't disqualify you. But helpfully, the, the ruling does talk through a number of things that would be considered relevant evidence to support those predictions that are, that are being made. And as we talked about previously, those record keeping requirements are really important, particularly in situations where there may not actually be a 30% drop in the end, but based on all the evidence at the time, it was uh, likely that there would have been a 30% drop. So that means it's especially important if you claim to qualify based on the June quarter. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So but the strange thing is when you actually apply for the JobKeeper, it's all about just the, the months, the quarters never get mentioned. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that's, if that's a system error, but, but it is very clear that you can, regardless of whether you lodge monthly or quarterly, you can rely on the quarter rather than the month. And that's clear from the legislation and also this law companion ruling as well. Helpfully, the, the Law Companion really talks about the various evidence that you could should take into consideration and they're things about, well, you know, what cancellations in revenue have taken place, what restrictions are there on trading, how long are those going to apply for. It notes that keeping good records, explaining how you undertook the calculations is necessary to show that you took reasonable steps. So 
specifically at paragraph 54, it says, well, if there's a significant difference between the projected turnover and what you actually come out with, one, the ATO will likely make inquiries about whether your calculation was reasonable. And then two, it says that, well, if you kept good records that explain in a logical way how you came to that calculation, that's more likely to show that you took reasonable steps and that your projections were reasonable. You must prepare this evidence now. If you prepare that evidence later on when the ATO starts knocking, then it's too late and then you run into the issue of backdating, correct? Yeah, well, it's not much value to put together predictions or estimates later on because one, those the, if you're doing a, an estimate, it has to be based on the information at the time and trying to do it later on is like, uh, you know, it's, a, it's got the benefit of hindsight and it's, it's really a bit self-serving. So it really needs to be documented and well-evidenced now rather than in the future when the ATO comes knocking. So this is a critical, critical thing for anyone who's relying on the quarter to qualify rather than the month of March or April. And this will be an area where there will be compliance activity in the future. I might, might, maybe not for a year or so, but I think this is one area where the ATO has already put essentially everyone on notice that you They're, need to keep good records. Yeah, they already told people that they will come knocking. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one major thing. The last major part of the Law Companion ruling is talking about the actual qualification for this drop in, in turnover is based, when you're calculating the drop in turnover, it's based on the value of supplies, which is a concept that's a little bit different to whether you're on an accruals basis or cash basis, which has been noted in the media. The law companion ruling essentially allows for a bit of flexibility as to exactly how the GST turnover is calculated. The starting point is that it allows accrual accounting. It's not exactly the same as this concept of the value of supplies you made or are likely to make, but the ATO acknowledges that this is a sort of a standard concept and the two aren't that different anyway. So you can use accrual accounting. The ATO also confirmed that even if you account for either GST or income tax on a cash basis, you can still use accrual accounting for the purposes of calculating the drop-in turnover test. So you may have a situation where a business has doesn't fall by 30% because it's getting a lot of cash or, or perhaps last year it wasn't getting much cash through the door. That one can qualify. It can use the accrual, accrual method to qualify instead. You can change from cash to accrual. You can do cash if you always did cash. Yep. But you can't do cash if you used to do accrual. It's more limited. So it does talk, the law companion ruling talks about, well, can we use cash? And the law companion ruling confirms that, well, if you're registered on a cash basis, then you can use cash, no problem. But it says that if you're registered for GST or, and you account on an accruals basis, then we'd expect in most cases that you would continue to, to use an accruals basis. It's a little bit vague and wishy-washy because it then says, well, if you choose to use a cash basis, we may want to understand why you've taken that uh, different approach and why that's appropriate to reflect your turnover. So in other words, 
if you're in a crawls business, but you're choosing to use cash basis, you need to have a very good reason why that's a reasonable thing to do because the ATS doesn't say that it can't be done, but that if it is done, you want to be able to back up your case very strongly. And is it reason enough to say, well, nobody paid our invoices anymore? So on an accrued basis, we continued having solid sales, but our cash flow completely dried up. Is that a valid enough reason? Well, I think that that would be a pretty valid reason because at the end of the day, there is the saying that cash is king. And if you're, if you're making sales that are not going to get paid for years, then you are in a position of financial strife. And if that's the result of that cash flow is because of essentially COVID-19, then from a policy perspective, that business really should qualify for the, for the job keeper. So they say that it is allowed. They don't mention the sort of the, that cash flow issue so explicitly, but it's more that they want to have a rationale for, for why. They do say that if you're a very large business, so if you're in the top 500 private groups or the top 100 or top 1,000 public groups, they're sort of putting those entities on, a, on much more of a, a notice that those really, really big entities really should use accruals accounting. So that means cash to cash is fine, accrual to accrual is fine, cash to accrual is fine, but accrual to cash is a problem. You need to have a valid reason. Yeah, that's the that's the tricky one. Yep, yep. And the last point that I wanted to make about the law companion ruling is is it specifically, very specifically and explicitly acknowledges that if your actual supplies are higher than predicted, that is okay. And that doesn't mean that you've, breach the JobKeeper rules. There's a really handy example at the very back of the companion ruling, which talks about a gym. And this gym owner calculates their turnover test with the information known at the time, including restrictions on when they can open or not open. And after that, there's been a change in dates, essentially, for, for when they can open. And as a result of that reopening earlier, they haven't had a 30% drop in revenue. So commissioner says, well, those kind of situations is fine. You've got to make those projections based on what you know at the time. And if essentially the economy reopens quicker, then that doesn't prevent you from getting the job keeper. Can I just quickly come back to the previous point? And that is when we discuss cash and accrual. But yep. isn't there also a third option? And that is using value of supplies. So is it possible that you don't qualify based on cash? You don't qualify based on accrual, but you qualify based on value of supplies? There is a third option. I think as a practical thing, I'd say the far easiest, that the easiest way is, is based on an accruals method. Bob Dodge used the example in his text wine email. And I think he uses, and that's actually his own example, I think. Yes. But he, yep. he uses a small business that supplies fruit and vegetables to the airline, is registered for GST, et cetera. In 2019, in March 2019, so in the comparison period, it made supplies worth 40,000, invoiced 15,000, and collected 20,000. That in 2020 has now changed to supplies worth 10,000, so dropped from 40,000 to 10,000, 
invoiced 12,000 and collected 25,000. So based on a casual accrual basis, it didn't have any change in turnover, but based on value of supplies, of course, it dropped from 40,000 to 10,000. But it also means that in March 2019, it made a huge loss. If you make supplies worth 40,000, but only invoice 15,000. One example of how you could have a difference between literally the the value being supplied and and an accruals is it's really about billing and not knowing the value at certain times so for example if you had a a law firm for instance with unbilled work in progress then that may not go to accruals but it could go to the value of services that have been supplied by that date Yes, exactly. It has to do with billing. So in this example, last year in March, the company made supplies of 40,000, but only billed 15,000. Yeah. And then had collected 20,000 from billings of previous months, etc. And then in March this year, it only made supplies of 10,000. But of course, it was still billing because it quite obviously has a quite long billing cycle and then of course also a quite long collection cycle so that means we basically have three criteria cash and accrual but if your billing cycle is very long and hence the sting of this downturn only comes later because you're still billing for last year Mm. then you can go to value of supplies yeah i mean it can really go both ways i mean if you've done half a job then from an accruals perspective you may not be entitled to bill anything really until until you've finished the job. But from a value of services supplied, you've you've clearly supplied something. At least those sort of more difficult questions on, well, if you've done half the job, does that mean you've provided half the value? Or or, or is it, you know, the, the sum is is more than the parts so that it's an amount less than that? And also the other way around where you might have done some work previously, but you've only billed for it now because it may have been for example, contingent on some other event happening. So it could go both ways. So so that's why value can be different to to accruals. But but there's a lot of complexities and difficulties in actually getting a, a reliable value figure. And that's why the ATO is allowing for these alternative methods. But I think this is a big thing, this value method. Mm. Because I can think of quite a few clients that have long billing cycles, long payment cycles, who lost all their work in March or April, but the money is still coming in and the invoices are still being created, or the money is still coming in, especially if they're on a cash basis. So the money is still coming in, even though all their work has broken away. Look, I think it's important to know that they've got these three methods. Um, I would sort of probably start with an accruals method as it, as it sort of makes the most sends in most scenarios and if remember you only sort of need to qualify one of these one of these alternatives to to satisfy the test and you only need to satisfy the test for one period so you've got quite a lot of flexibility on exactly how you make Mm. your calculation and we're not even talking about the alternative tests at this point as well this value test i think is very important especially when you don't have point of sale payments, but you have quite a long payment cycle, then I think this value of supplies option is crucial. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly on the on the forecast, the, the quarter forecast, trying to make a prediction around value that's being provided is uh, it's, it's a difficult one. So that was the law companion ruling. So it basically covered one, two, three, four, five, six points. The first point was that the turnover test applies on a monthly as well as quarterly 
basis, just highlighting that again. Then the second point is it, it confirmed that the decline in turnover only need, needs to be met once. Once yep. you're through the door, you're fine. The third one was just to reiterate that the main supplies that are out of your turnover test are input text supplies and supplies not connected to Australia. The fourth one was stressing the need for record keeping to be able to provide evidence. Yep. The fifth one was to highlight that there are basically three options to calculate your turnover test, cash accrual and value value of supplies and the sixth point was that if you if your estimates turn out to be incorrect if it turns out that your turnover was higher than expected that's okay as long as you have evidence to show that you were right absolutely yeah that's a good summary so that's the law companion ruling and then the last of the three is pcg 2020-4 correct pcg 2020-4 practical compliance guideline 2020-4 and I found this one as a as a lawyer to be the most uh, the most interesting and juicy of the of the three. So this is a practical compliance guideline, and what that stream of products is is it's really about guidance on how the ATO is going to apply their compliance resources to reviewing claims for for JobKeeper essentially, and this is targeted upon the application of the potential anti-avoidance rules in the in the job keeper just to recap in the job keeper rules section 19 of the of the act provides a, an avoidance mechanism that essentially provides that if an entity's done something with the sole or dominant purpose of either obtaining a job keeper payment or increasing any amount of a job keeper payment the commissioner can determine the entity was never entitled to it meaning then that the commissioner can recover overpayments, impose penalties and interest and so on. So, so it's quite, a, quite an important provision. The practice companion guidelines start with the principle that the job keeper is around businesses that have been significantly affected and for policy reasons, so it is appropriate that they, that they get the payments essentially. So it looks at schemes where Really, it's contrived that the entity has has fallen in revenue and they haven't really been too affected by the COVID-19 situation. Now, these examples are not law. This is all about whether the ATO is going to allocate compliance resources. So it doesn't mean this case is definitely avoidance or this case is definitely not. It's just some principles to, to operate by. So the ATO basically is just saying, these are scenarios that will pick our interest. If you go through one of those actions, expect us, expect a phone call from us. Essentially, yeah, it's quite similar to what was released by the ATO about four or five years ago about professional service firms, income splitting, and um, the income splitting rules actually provided, I guess, flags to swim between just gives you examples of what we think is high risk and what's what's lower risk so yeah whether to expect a, an audit or not the guidelines go through a number of examples they go through eight examples and the examples are either ones that are high risk or ones that are low risk my problem with these sort of examples is while it is helpful to give guidance, situations are often far more nuanced than, than simple black and white because there can be a number of things at play. So I'll go through example one and example two. So example one is about the situation where you've deferred 
making supplies in order to obtain the JobKeeper payment. So specifically, let's say you've used the quarter ending 30 June 2020, and what you've done is you've essentially pushed out your invoices from that quarter to, to the next quarter. And as a result of that, you've met the decline in turnover test. This is the example that's gone, it's covered by example number one, and specifically says that this business involved hasn't been significantly affected by external factors and, and is really sort of business as usual other than it's pushed out its invoicing till, till later on. So this is an example where the commissioner says he'll apply compliance resources to, to schemes of that type. Yeah, but Andrew, it's very yep. difficult for the commissioner to see that. I guess that's the first question. How do you actually pick that up? And I, and I guess you could pick that up to some extent by looking through at um, through Baz's and, and seeing, you know, take all the averages and you see sort of a, a drop and then a spike and then a normalization afterwards. It yes. would suggest some sort of some movement of turnover, essentially. If March is strong, April is really weak, and then May is stronger than ever, then that would raise questions. And the same probably also if the quarterly statement doesn't really have any decline in turnover, but the company claims a decline in turnover for April, then that would also raise questions because it would then mean that they had a decline in April, but then May and June were stronger than ever or expected to be stronger than ever. Yeah. And I think in this example, I mean, it's fairly clear in the, in the facts given that this would be not only something the commissioner would devote compliance resources to, but seems quite likely to be an avoidance scheme. I guess the situation becomes a bit more difficult when there may be reasons other than JobKeeper as to why invoices have been deferred out. And, and that could be because the customers don't have any ability to pay them. So they might say, well, there's no point even issuing them for now. Or it could be a situation where there's a long lead time on the particular turnover. So for instance, it could be a whip type situation where, and for some law firms, they, they you know, just running litigation, for instance, they may build up quite large whip before actually invoicing it. It's clear in sort of the, the vanilla situation, but if you throw a few tweaks and other facts in there, it might be a little bit different. Second example is the same as the first, except instead of deferring, we're bringing forward the supplies. So in other words, we, we get our turnover up for, for the current period, and then we can qualify for later on. So essentially bring forward revenue into let's say March or April and, and um, well, we don't qualify for March or April, but maybe we can qualify for, for May onwards or, or June onwards or something like that. So that's another one where the example says that, well, there's nothing else that the um, company's been affected by and, and therefore commissioner will apply compliance resources in that scenario as well. So this PCG 2020-4, that will be highly relevant for you going forward when it comes to litigation, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's, it's highly relevant to... Uh, no, it I guess. isn't actually, Andrew, because it just tells us where the ATO plans to look. It doesn't actually, once the ATO is looking, it doesn't actually change anything. Yeah, I think it's more relevant to assessing now whether or not a business qualifies or not, because knowing what is high risk is is relevant to the time of actually making the application. In terms of 
audits happening, there's probably not much relevance to know whether the commission is applying compliance resources if they've already audited you anyway. Yeah, I mean, it may may have some relevance. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more for decision making now rather than when you're in the middle of an audit later. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. So example two, again, it's, it's, it's quite a quite a sort of open and shut example. I guess if you throw a few different tweaks in there, like there's cash flow reasons why the business has invoiced earlier than it would otherwise, and, and they've actually been paid as well. Um, you, you could throw a few tweaks in that as well to, to make it a little bit more complex and nuanced. Example three goes through a situation where if you've got a company leasing assets, and somewhat artificially, it creates a subsidiary and transfers all those assets to the subsidiary and then the subsidiary leases the assets. So this, this seems to be quite a blatant uh, situation where you've basically moved all your turnover out of one company to another. And because you've moved that turnover, then, then your projected DST turnover for that company is obviously declined. Now, I'd say that's a, that's a fairly high risk one and a fairly clear one. I suppose it may be a little bit more gray if there's other things, for instance, if it's not a complete transfer and uh, uh, perhaps the company's running multiple operations and for asset protection purposes, it may want to move some assets to another entity. Example four, five, and six are all about service company and operating entity arrangements where a service company employs employees, pays their wages, and the service company gets its revenue by way of service fees from an operating company. And depending on that service fee, whether that service fee has changed, that will depend on whether the service company actually meets the decline in turnover test. The rules in, its, in essence say that, well, if the operating company has legitimately suffered a big loss, then the fact that the operating company's modified the service fee, either through less provision of services or just an agreement between the the entities, then those things will generally be low risk. However, if it's more of an artificial situation where let's say the operating company hasn't been very affected at all and the two entities have just agreed to reduce the fees now and then bring them up later on, then you're in a much more uh, dicey situation. But it's good that they picked that up because it is a problem because the service company basically just has cost in, cost out. So it's quite right. I mean, the, and the service company and the operating entity may have may have had a contractual agreement for a for a fixed service fee, for instance, which is the example given by the ATO. So they may sort of be contractually obliged to to pay the same amount even with the COVID situation. So so it is good that the ATO do. Pick refer up. to those scenarios and, and do provide that those sort of arrangements are low risk because in essence, the service company's arrangements are, their revenue is being reduced, not through an artificial mechanism, but because the operating companies are suffering. So it seems to be a reasonable and quite helpful for that, that to be provided. The last two are about parent companies with management fees. So you can have a situation where you've got a parent company and it employs people and there's a number of subsidiary companies. Now, in the first example, the parent company charges the subsidiaries each uh, management fee. And then what happens is that well, the businesses of the subsidiaries are severely impacted by COVID. So the management fees are either not paid or they're less or they've agreed to defer them or something of that nature. Now, the ATO said that's 
unlikely to attract attention of the avoidance mechanisms. And again, that's really reflecting sort of an economic reality that really the underlying businesses have suffered. So it would be appropriate in those circumstances to reduce those management fees. I guess the situation becomes a little bit more grey when instead of having three subsidiaries that have all been affected, you might have a situation where two subsidiaries have been affected or one has been affected or, or some sort of mix rather than an all or nothing type approach. And the last example is is a follow-on, again, regarding management fees. And, and in this situation, instead of uh, instead of being affected, the, the, the group's not affected at all and they, they just alter the timing of the payment of management fees. And, and uh, clearly that one's, a, that one's a high risk situation. And this last one, is that example eight or example yeah, that's, nine? That's example eight. Yeah. I see. Yep. Yep. Okay. So it says, well, same facts as example seven, except the business of the group hasn't been adversely affected by COVID-19. But anyway, the group decides to alter the timing of the management fee payments so that the parent company would satisfy the decline in turnover test. And clearly that's sort of a high risk one, given that the businesses really haven't been affected by COVID-19, adversely impacted by COVID-19. But you could think of a lot of scenarios that are in between those two, in between the scenario where all of the subsidiaries are affected and, and none of them are affected. And I think that the real difficulty lies in those sort of those more grey situations that are not so so black and white. You've got the situations where the rules, the sort of an entity's done things very clearly with the intent of finding loopholes and hasn't actually been economically impacted by COVID. And you've got situations where they have been economically impacted and things have changed as a result of that. And generally that second category, the ATO was saying those are low risk and the first category are high risk. So they are... Eight examples yep. or eight areas that the ATO is looking out for. Mm. The first one is changing the timing of invoices, so big spikes or drops in turnover. Yeah, that's deferral, that, yep. Yeah, deferral. The second one I actually didn't write down. What Sorry, the, the second, second one? one is bringing forward. First is, is deferring, second is bringing forward. So the first one is deferring your invoicing, the second one is bringing your invoicing forward, the third yep. one is moving turnover from one entity to the next? Essentially, yeah. The third one's essentially moving either turnover or business assets from one entity to another. The fourth, fifth and sixth are all about service companies and yes. operating companies and how the relationship between those two companies is then assessed with yep. respect to the turnover test. Correct. Example seven and eight are about the parent company and the management fees. And especially example eight is about changing the timing of management fees. Yes. Yeah, so example seven and eight where parent companies have employees and their business operations are run by different companies. The two examples that are the most relevant to most people are example one and two, deferring or bringing forward turnover. Yeah. Yep. So, and I think that the point to make on those is if it's blatantly for the purpose of just artificially getting JobKeeper and the business hasn't really economically been affected, those taxpayers are going to be in trouble. If it's a situation where there, there may be legitimate reasons, then it's a bit more nuanced. You probably would expect an audit, but I, I guess if you're in that situation, the best thing to do is to, is to document your case very clearly regarding why you've done those actions and why you do qualify for the turnover test. From what the ATO and Treasury have said, that it appears that, that there's not going to be any further rules. There's not going to be any further 
substantive legislative instruments at this time, or there's nothing further in development at this time. Okay. So now we've got um, the latest was that businesses had until the 8th of May to make the first two fortnights payments to, to satisfy the wage condition. And businesses has have until 30 May to enroll for the JobKeeper to be entitled to payments from the very start of JobKeeper. So in other words, businesses that have already paid their staff still have a few weeks to determine whether they would like to apply for JobKeeper as from the beginning of the JobKeeper system. And if you applied for the JobKeeper as from May, thinking that you don't qualify because you had a long billing cycle and your turnover based on cash or accrual hadn't dropped in April, even though your work had dried up, then you can go back and reapply for April, even though originally you applied from May onwards. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And it's important to note that there's quite a lot of flexibility with the method of calculating that turnover. The reality is with the audit process and with uh, tax disputes, they, they occur a long time after actions in question actually happen. So even though the JobKeeper payments will at this stage expire at the end of September, we may see audit activity starting this year, going through next year, the year after. And we may also see cases in the AAT or federal court starting perhaps next year or the year after. There's still a long way ahead. Still a long way ahead. And if uh, the experience with things like GST and getting input tax credits and R&D tax offsets is anything to go by, there will be quite a lot of that activity towards the, towards the end of JobKeeper. Welcome back. So PSLA 2020-1 is all about the commissioner's discretion, especially when there is no ABN, BES or tax return lodged as of the 12th of March 2020. LCR 2020-1 is an omnibus ruling, meaning covering a range of issues. But the most important one is that you can assess your decline in turnover based on value of supplies. So not just accrual or cash, but also value. And PCG 2020-4 is all about anti-avoidance. The ATO telling us what they are looking for, especially changing the timing of your invoicing or payments. So these are the latest rulings about the JobKeeper payment. There is probably more coming. There is talk of reducing the JobKeeper for some and increasing it for others. So we will do an update when this comes through. But it is time to look ahead so tomorrow we will finally start, make a first attempt to think about something different than COVID-19 and lockdown, cash flow boosts and JobKeeper. Tomorrow we will start our regular episodes, promised. So see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Do you yeah. expect mitigation to come out of the cash flow boost and the JobKeeper payments? Yeah, absolutely. I reckon, yeah, there, there, there will definitely be litigation. I mean, if you look back at things like the R&D cash incentive, like there's heaps of litigation regarding that. And this is even bigger. So, yeah, mm -hmm. there will be. 
<laughs> when we are all back to work and it's done and dusted, you will really get into JobKeeper issues. Yeah, yeah, I think I think for the next couple of years there'll be audits and inquiries and things like that. Like it will, it will leave its mark um, for, for a number of years once once the cash is you know stopped uh, stopped being transferred.